Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, five years after it was expelled for annexing Crimea, Russia has been admitted back onto the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. And not everyone is happy about it. Even though yeah, it's hard to say Ukraine leaving the Council of Europe, you know, it wants to be represented in European institutions. This is a, a you know, a blow to a country that is trying to get maximum sanctions for Russia. We'll speak to Bloomberg columnist Leonid Bershitsky about how the decision has divided European allies and delighted Russia. And later, a decade after Russia and Georgia fought a five-day war, ties between the countries are at a historic low following a dramatic week of protests, resignations and sanctions. Both of these are very proud nations, the Russians and Georgians, and a lot of insults have been flying back and forth. And just to get back to normal, where we were a couple of weeks ago, um, is going to be hard. We'll be speaking with Thomas Duval of the Carnegie Think Tank about why Vladimir Putin is lashing out at Georgia. First up, the Ukrainian delegation and six others staged a walkout in protest on Tuesday after Russia was readmitted to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, or PACE. It turns out to be more interested in protecting the well-being of an aggressor rather than the victims of aggression and oppression. The future of the Council of Europe is under threat. Representatives from 47 countries voted 118 to 62 in favor of welcoming Russia back. The ballot is being described as the first major reversal on a series of penalties handed to Russia for annexing Crimea in 2014. Joining us on the line to discuss the fallout is Bloomberg columnist Leonid Bershitsky. Leonid, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me on. Since the European Union imposed sanctions on Russia in 2014 for annexing Crimea, it has voted to renew them every six months. Pace, of course, is not the EU. But why is it that European representatives have seen it fit to, well, capitulate on this issue? Well, there's basically uh, two official reasons and one unofficial one. The the two official ones are that uh, it's advisable to continue a dialogue with Russia, even if uh, it doesn't really follow any rules. Ending the dialogue would only provoke Russia to get even more, uh, let's say, aggressive or assertive. And uh, besides, uh, keeping Russia out of pace created the risk of Russia leaving the Council of Europe altogether. And that would mean leaving the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, Mm. which uh, certainly wouldn't be a good idea from the point of view of Russian dissidents and other people mistreated by the Russian justice and prison system. Mm. So these are the two official reasons. The unofficial one is money. Russia only paid one-third of its contribution to the Council of Europe in 2017, didn't pay anything in 2018 and 19. It's a serious part of the Council of Europe budget, uh, between 7 and 10%. Mm. And it happened at the same time as Turkey 
declined to be a principal contributor hmm. to the Council of Europe. So the organization faced uh, what they described as a financial crisis. They were more than 40 million euros low uh, last year, and there was a panic about it, even though it's sort of like a 10% budget cut for an organization that budgets more than 60 million euros for its governing bodies, which I think is outrageous. So, you know, for those three reasons, they saw fit to basically for the first time since 2014, yeah. anyone has lifted Russia sanctions. This is the, you know, this is a precedent. So in practical terms, is there anything that Russia sort of can do now meaningfully that it couldn't before? Or is this just a sort of a major symbolic victory? Uh, well, it's... Uh, to a large degree symbolic, but, uh, uh, you know, sort of one meaningful thing that Russia is probably going to be able to do now that it's back is take part in election observation missions, mm. uh, which is, uh, you know, for Russia, a matter of status and prestige. Also, it will be present in, in pace, and there's a chance that uh, legislators elected in Crimea might also be present. Hmm. which uh, is is also sort of a ma- major symbolic victory. And not just symbolic, you know, people who live in Crimea have problems uh, traveling on their passports outside Russia. This would be a breakthrough for uh, people living in Russian-occupied Crimea. They'd be sort of accepted as members of an international organization, they'd be able to, you know, speak in a uh, an official forum, even if it's not the most important one in the world. Hmm. What kind of tension is this or could this create between traditional European allies um, or between Europe and Ukraine or the other six countries whose representatives walked out? I know Germany in particular voted in favor. The UK was against. What kinds of What kinds of tensions are we seeing or might we see play out in the future over this move? Well, we're seeing, you know, the vote on giving Russia back its voting rights was split along, roughly along east-west lines. Western Europe backed it. Eastern Europe, people from the Baltics, Poland, Ukraine were against it. And, uh, you know, obviously in these post-communist countries, Russia is seen as a threat. In the West, not so much. You know, this is where the prevailing mood is that there should be a dialogue, even though there are differences. But Ukrainians especially don't see it as differences. They see it as a war, even though it's hard to say Ukraine leaving the Council of Europe, you know, it wants to be represented in European institutions. This is a, a, you know, a blow to a country that is trying to get maximum sanctions for Russia because Russia keeps basically it not just annexed a piece of Ukrainian territory, it keeps mm. supporting a, uh, a war in eastern Ukraine. So the Ukrainian interest is very clear in this situation. And obviously, even though the you know France and Germany told Ukraine in advance that they were going to you know back this in the Council of Europe, you know this is a you know an unpleasant development for the Ukrainians, and, and they're just hoping that it's not good, the malaise is not going to spread any further, and the European Union is not going to lift sanctions. Human rights activists in in Russia have welcomed the move, which might seem counterintuitive given that Russia was ostensibly removed from pace for legal violations, violations of international law. So can you explain why Russian human rights activists have largely been supportive of the decision to have Russia reinstated? Well, let's 
that's because of the European Court for Human Rights. The, the Russia, since it was kicked out of pace, has made threats basically to disregard the rulings of, of that court, which is the court of last resort for human rights cases uh, in countries that are members of the Council of Europe. And uh, it's asserted the supremacy of uh, national court's rulings over the EACTR rulings and uh, basically you know it was threatening to drop out of the council of europe altogether which would put it outside the court's jurisdiction mm. that would be horrible for the human rights activists because when they can't get anywhere with the russian justice system they sort of routinely go to the the court in strasbourg and last year russia actually paid out uh, about uh, 12 million euros, uh, wow. if I recall correctly, on uh, rulings by that court. Uh, so this is not entirely meaningless. People actually win significant awards and uh, not to mention sort of the moral victory of, uh, uh, of getting a favorable verdict in Europe where one can't get one in Russia. Right. So that's, you know, from the point of the activists, from the point of view of the activists, the, you know, keeping Russia under the jurisdiction of the European Court for Human Rights is all important. Absolutely. They really don't want to lose it. Do you sense that this is the beginning of Russia's reintegration back into the fold of you know, civilized Western Western countries? Are, are we now going to see Europe easing restrictions on or penalties on Russia for its annexation of Crimea, even though Russia has not meaningfully changed its behavior as Western countries would like it to do? I seriously doubt that France and Germany would go that far. There is, unlike uh, in the case of the Council of Europe, which had this budgetary problem that was weighing, you know, weighing heavily on it, the, the the European Union does not really have any compelling economic reasons to get rid of the Russia sanctions. In fact, European food exports, which suffered the heaviest from Russian counter sanctions, were above the 2013 pre-sanction level last year. Mm. They found other markets. Russia st is still uh, a major energy supplier, and you know the sanctions did not change that. Europe doesn't want to irritate the U.S. Uh, too much by uh, dropping sanctions when the U.S. is is basically strengthening its own sanctions against Russia. So there are really, you know, even for the countries where governments are openly anti-sanction, like Hungary and Italy. There is really no huge benefit, no huge upside to uh, breaking ranks. Uh, so I doubt that the EU is going to do what the Council of Europe did. And, and basically, I think that they shouldn't. Imposing the sanctions in the first place probably wasn't a good idea because they always hurt innocent people and, you know, not just the government, which is basically legitimate and does nasty things in their name. But now that they've imposed the sanctions and they've clearly said what they've imposed them for, which is the annexation of Crimea, the downing of flight MH17 mm -hmm. in July 2014, all these really, you know, these crimes. Just lifting the sanctions before the crimes are undone, before Russia returns Crimea 
or, and pays out compensation to you know the families of people who died on that flight and stops the war in eastern Ukraine before Russia actually does anything to make amends would be um, you know a really weak move and it would show that you know whatever principles the European Union declares aren't really worth much hmm. so you know now that the sanctions have been imposed it's it's not a good idea to remove them until something changes. Nina, thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today and to share those insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Protests erupted in the capital of Georgia late last week after a Russian member of parliament, Sergei Gavrilov, addressed the parliament in Tbilisi from the speaker's chair. Hundreds of demonstrators, offended by Gavrilov's cameo, were injured in the ensuing clashes with riot police, who deployed tear gas and rubber bullets to disperse the crowds. In the aftermath, Russia has banned flights to Georgia and threatened sanctions on its wine. The demonstrations have exposed fault lines not only in Georgia's internal politics, but also with its fragile relationship with Russia. Joining us on the line is Thomas Deval, a Moscow Times alum and currently a senior fellow at the Carnegie Think Tank. Tom, thanks very much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, glad to be with you. The protest in Tbilisi last week, is is that about Russia or is it about the ruling Georgian Dream Party? It's basically about the ruling Georgian Dream Party, but of course it's also about their Russia policy. This is basically a Georgian uh, domestic crisis in which Russia very rapidly got involved because Russia is never far from Georgia's thoughts. Um, but this is really about the, the clash of the two big parties in Georgia, the duopoly, um, which has been in charge of Georgia for the last um, 15, 20 years. Uh, on the one hand, the ruling uh, Georgian Dream Party, which was founded by Georgia's richest man, uh, Bidzina Ivanishvili. And on the other hand, the old ruling party, the United National Movement, led by former President Mikhail Saakashvili. They've basically been clashing with one another over all sorts of issues uh, for a long time. And the particular uh, issue for UNM, for Saakashvili's party, is claiming that uh, Ivanishvili's party is is soft on Russia. So um, when the um, this Russian parliamentarian, Sergei Gavrilov, not just appeared in the Georgian parliament, but actually chaired a session from the speaker's chair. Uh, this was, uh, I think, that a lot of ordinary Georgians were upset about this. They were indignant uh, at the sight of a Russian parliamentarian in the speaker's chair in Georgia. Uh, it looked to them as though you know Russia was occupying the, the Georgian parliament. Um, but it, this was used in particular by the opposition uh, as an instrument mm. against the government. This is, this is where it all kicked off. Let's zoom out for a moment. Russia and Georgia fought a, a brief five-day war in, in August 2008. Can you describe how the relationship has, has changed since? Polls in Russia, at least, seem to show that the number of people who view Georgia negatively has has really plummeted since. That's right. I mean, obviously, um, for the last 30 years, back dating back to 1989, Georgia and Russia have had a very turbulent relationship, having been, you know, two very close uh, republics in Soviet days, a lot of cultural links, uh, you know, a lot of links between them. Um, but ever since the perestroika days, uh, ever since um, Georgia started militating for independence and um, the Abkhaz and the Ossetians didn't want that, and Russia was basically supporting the Abkhaz and the Ossetians over Tbilisi. The relationship has been 
and difficult. So we then had these two wars over Abkhazia and South Ossetia in, in, in the 1990s. And as you say, um, the five-day war in, in 2008, uh, that seemed to be a kind of high point of bad relations, um, particularly after um, Russia recognized then Abkhazia and South Ossetia to be independent. Mm. Um, but what we saw, what we've seen since 2012, when Ivanishvili's Georgian dream came to power, is a dual track policy. On the one hand, no diplomatic relations, um, no agreement at all on Abkhazia and South Ossetia, so I can complete standoff on those issues. At the same time, normalization on on other issues which are of mutual interest. Um, so in particular, transport communications, um, flights being resumed, um, and as we've seen, um, I think one million Russian tourists visiting mm. last year, and also trade resuming. So um, Georgian agricultural exports, mineral water and wine, uh, going back to the uh, Russian market from which they'd been banned, which seems to suit everybody, the Georgian wine producers, um, and for whom you know Russia is the natural market. The, you know, a Russian knows what a Khvanshkara uh, or a, a Kinsmarauli is in a way that a European never will probably. Um, and also the, the Russian consumers themselves getting their favorite um, Georgian wines back on the table. So that that um, is the kind of the kind of good news people to people story that's been going on um, between Georgia and Russia. Mm. But it's always been very vulnerable because, of course, there's no political relations and, and because um, the two are at the same time as they're trading and communicating with another, they're still in a sort of frozen conflict over Abkhazia and, and South Ossetia. So, so in, um, in response to the protests that erupted last week, Russia suspending flights, making a decision to, to suspend flights between Moscow and Tbilisi as of the middle of July or early July, Russia looks poised to now sanction Georgian wine, kind of a hallmark export. How will the economy there uh, respond to, to those sorts of hits? Well, first of all, let's let's say that this is a developing story, um, and I think what we're watching closely is if um, this looks like a very angry and rather emotional reaction from Moscow that you've mistreated and humiliated our parliamentarian, we're mm. going to punish you, and the whole state machine in Russian fashion swings in behind us to support that action, and I think it comes right from the top from, from President Putin. Uh, having said that, there are other people invested in the relationship, in the trade and, and tourism and so on, who are, prob who are not so happy to see this and s who also see that this could be a strategic damage to Russia to, to curtail this. So I think we're seeing a kind of behind the scenes tussle about how far this goes. Is this a kind of symbolic punishment for Georgia that the Russians then back off? in a week or two and they don't go through on the wine ban? Or is this, you know, we're back to 10, 12 years ago and a full breakdown in relations? We really don't don't know that. Mm. As for your question uh, about the economy, um, yeah, it's it's a big deal. I, I haven't got the exact figures, but I, I somewhere at least 70% of, of Georgian wine goes to the Russian market uh, nowadays. Um, Russian tourists have been um, one of the biggest groups coming to to Georgia in recent years. Mm -hmm. Georgia will survive this blow, but it will it will definitely be be, be quite a blow to the Georgian economy if, if this goes through. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 Speaker of Parliament, uh, Mr. Kobakidze, uh, has 
Well, he stood down last week and the government, Georgian, the Georgian Dream Party, has, has promised electoral for reforms for next year's uh, parliamentary elections. Will this be enough to assuage the, the, the protesters? And uh, what about repairing ties with, with Russia? How is Georgian Dream going to, going to fix these problems? Well, as for the domestic situation, um, the, the resignation of the speaker, I think, assuages some people. But I think there's a general discontent with the ruling party, feeling that they're out of touch. Um, some very un, uh, unpopular recent court cases, a feeling that the economy is drifting a bit and, and mainly a feeling that, that the country is governed by not by the the young government that they see before them, but by behind the scenes figures mm. who are unaccountable, notably Mr. Ivanishvili. So there's a lot of discontent with the government. Having said that, I don't think a lot of Georgians see uh, Mr. Saakashvili as the uh, solution either. If you look at the latest polls back in April, May, uh, they show that both Ivanishvili and Saakashvili score a significantly higher negative rating with the public than they do uh, a, a positive rating. So I think what we're seeing is a kind of standoff and everyone getting ready for elections next year. And I think the key question everyone is asking is that is there another opposition force who is not mm. doesn't have the baggage of Saakashvili that can exploit this unhappiness with the government? And I, I just... We don't see that yet, but but anything, um, many things are possible before next year. As for your question on repairing relations with with Russia, that's going to be tricky because um, you know both of these. Um, you know, I'm sounding a, a little bit of a cliche here, but it's true. Both of these are very proud nations, the Russians and Georgians, and a lot of insults have been flying back and forth. Um, and just to get back to normal, where we were a couple of weeks ago, um, is going to be hard. Um, I, I think. Hopefully, as I've already hinted at, maybe the worst won't be followed through. Maybe this wine ban will not be imposed and then things can cool off a bit over the summer. Um, but we still have this long term problem um, that um, Georgia and most of the world regards Abkhazia and South Ossetia to be an integral part of Georgia and Russia has recognized them as independent. And that's, you know, a long term problem um, which which no one sees a solution to. Tom, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to join us in the podcast. Thanks so much. And to finish off, Maybe you've heard of Metal Gear Solid, you know, the action-adventure video game franchise that sold some 60 million copies worldwide. At a meeting of Russian lawmakers last week, Andrei Kortopolov said that internet projects of the American special services, such as Metal Gear, are aimed at the direct manipulation of the public consciousness. Sounding as if he'd just had his high score beaten, he added that the game encouraged protest activity and dissatisfaction with the authorities. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on Pace, Georgia, and, of course, other oddities from across Russia. You'll also find details of the Moscow Times' new crowdfunding campaign there. And if you consume our independent reporting from Russia, please consider throwing your spare change our way. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Pyotr Sauer. And thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Usually, I would invite you to join us next week on the podcast, but we won't be here. We've been invited to take a break from airing over the summer, and we will be back in September. September.